Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be being a friend of God. Let's begin today in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, beginning in the ninth verse, it says, As the Father have loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love have no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Verse 14 told us, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. As Christians, we should all desire to be friends of God. And Jesus tells us here that we are his friends. But like many other promises that we find throughout Scripture, this promise is conditional. The key word is if. Since we all want to be his friends, that if becomes incredibly important. What does it take to be a friend of God? What does that look like? What characteristics constitute a friendship with the Most High God? This isn't any ordinary friendship like the ones that we're normally accustomed to. This is different. This is higher, deeper, infinitely more intimate. Many people stop at the if because they don't want to do what it calls for, even though it's a small price to pay when compared to the incredible, eternal, abundant blessings that come from having him as our friend. Others, however, do go beyond the if. They meet the conditions. They do what it calls for, and they become the friends of God. First, we need to look at the word friend itself. What does it actually mean? The concordance says for this word in the Greek that it means a friend, someone dearly loved and prized in a personal, intimate way, a trusted confidant, held dear in a close bond of personal affection. It also goes on to say that it conveys experiential, personal affection, indicating that it expresses experience-based love. It focuses on value-driven, decision-based love, which does not exclude affection. In today's world, there are so many terms that we've thrown around and used so loosely that they start to become watered down and lose their meaning. Friend is one of those words. We call people that we barely know our friends, and we call people that we intimately know our friends. And when we do that, the term is robbed of its true meaning. In order for there to be a friendship, there has to be an intimate personal knowledge and affection between the two parties. That means that the first step of being a friend of God is being born again, inviting Him into your life, and starting a personal relationship with Him. A friendship is a type of relationship, and it naturally falls that where there is no relationship, there can be no friendship. That's the first step, which we've all done. That's why we're listening to this program today. But we can't just stop at the introduction and leave it there, thinking that we've done enough. We have to go deeper than that, seeking to grow in intimacy with Him. That has to be our desire. No one is a true friend with someone begrudgingly or out of compulsion. That wouldn't make any sense. They're friends because they have a desire to be so. That's how we grow in our friendship as it matures. As it develops, there are certain characteristics that begin to become apparent. One of the greatest examples when it comes to being a friend of God is Abraham. James 2 and 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. 
We also find that reaffirmed in Isaiah 41 and 8, which says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. The first thing that we have to point out from this verse is the distinction that's made, because it's very telling about one of the marks of true friendship. Abraham was called a friend, while Israel was called a servant. Friends and servants aren't treated the same. There's a different level of intimacy. The relationship between a master and a servant is far more transactional. It's business-like. It's mechanical. With a friend, it's rooted in love. It seeks the other's benefit. It seeks to bless the other person. We find this also in what we read earlier. John 15 and 15 told us, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. What this means is that the Lord confides in us. He reveals his will to us. You don't confide in just anyone. That would be foolish. And we know that the Lord isn't foolish. You confide in people you trust. And it's no different when dealing with the Lord. He confides in those who we can trust. In the definition for friend that we looked at earlier, it said a trusted confidant. That's what being a friend looks like. It means that the Lord trusts us and confides in us. But like with any relationship, it's a two-way street. And that means that we have to trust in Him and confide in Him also. That's hard for many people to do. Trust isn't like love. It's not blind, and it's not freely given. It's earned over the course of time through experience. Psalm 9 and 10 says, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. We trust in Him because we know Him. We know His character and His way of acting. In the classic Amplified, this verse says, And they who know your name, who have experience and acquaintance with your mercy, will lean on and confidently put their trust in you. For you, Lord, has not forsaken those who seek, inquire of, and for you, on the authority of God's word and the right of their necessity. We trust in the Lord because we've seen firsthand that he has a proven track record. When we look back on our life and see how he's always provided for us, always sustained us, always cared for and guided us with his loving, gracious hand, there's no reason not to trust. Not trusting would be incredibly foolish and put us in a worse position than we were in before. That's why we're told in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We have ample reasons for trusting in the Lord, but we also have to ask ourselves, can the Lord trust us? Have we given him reason to believe that if he confides in us by revealing his will to us, that we'll do what he's commanding? Have we given the impression or experience of just ignoring his will? Or have we heard his voice as his word, went forth, and done what he called us to do? Have we obeyed or pushed off our responsibilities? The answer to these questions makes all the difference. If we ignore his word and continually and habitually go against his will, then we haven't given him reason to trust us. We've actually given him reason not to confide in us. That's not soil that's conducive to growing a friendship. That's the opposite. The Lord can trust us when He's entrusted us with His Word, and we obey. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. That's why it said in verse 14, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. It's our fulfilling of this condition that builds up the experience necessary for trust to exist between both of us. Similar to trust is the next quality of a true friendship, which is dependability. Dependability is shown over the course of time, manifested through experience. Friends are there when you need them, and they're there for you when it counts the most. 
That's in many ways the most fundamental role of a friend. Proverbs 17 and 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Real friends aren't fair-weather friends. They're not just there for you when it's convenient. They're with you during the hard times as well as the easy times. In the Message Bible, it says, Friends love through all kinds of weather, and families stick together in all kinds of trouble. They're there with you during the difficult, painful, trying times, helping you to get through them. It's during those times when we need someone to lean on, someone to comfort us, someone to encourage us. Those are the times that we need a friend the most. There are times in this life when we can't do it alone. Our strength fails us. We feel weary, and we feel weakened and disheartened, and we need someone to go through it with us. This is why the Lord commanded the strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. The Lord knows the human condition. He knows these times come into life, and that's why He perfectly makes provision for them. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 12 say, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He gives us friends in the natural to help us, and he himself also helps us as our friend. We find one manifestation of this with Job. Job was at the lowest point in his life. Not only had he lost everything, he lost his business, his livestock, his servants, his wife had turned on him, and on top of all that, he lost all his children. It was during this time that he needed friends the most. Job 2 and 11 says, Now when Job's free friends heard all of this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namophite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. We all know that as good as their intentions may have been, they didn't prove to be good comforters. In many ways, they made the situation worse. So God stepped in and spoke to Job himself as his friend. When man fails, when man reaches his limit, God seizes the opportunity to show his power and strength in a way that only he can. This is a great example of that. When you need a friend and no one in the natural can seem to provide what you really need, you have Jesus, always ready and willing to help. Proverbs 18 and 24 says, A man that have friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That friend is Jesus. He's an ever-present help in a time of need, a friend we can always call on. He's the same God who told us in Isaiah 65 and 24, And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. He's always dependable because he's always there. Similar to what we looked at with trusting, though, we also have to ask ourselves, can God depend on us? When he reveals his will, can he depend on us to do it? When he's looking for someone to answer his call, will we say with Isaiah, send me, I'll go? Ezekiel 22 and 30 says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. We shouldn't want God to ever be able to say that again, that he looked for someone but found none. We should be that one. We should be the one that he can depend on. That's what it means to be a friend. That way, he can depend on us to follow his commands. And we can follow verse 14 that told us, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. The last element of a true friendship that we need to look at is love, which is really the foundation of all the rest. Especially when we're specifically dealing with our friendship with God, love must be present. 
God is the same God who is love personified. So it's only natural that if we befriend him, that love will be in the equation. It's impossible for it not to be. The word for friend in the Greek that we started off with today is the word philos, which as we know from other times, is one of the four types of love in the Greek. This is the love that has to do with friends and family, which is why it's used here. When it comes to God, though, our love has to be agape love, love in action, unconditional, self-sacrificial love. How deep is our friendship with God? That's a question that we have to be able to answer. Abraham was a friend of God, and that manifested itself in action, most notably in his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar to God. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, beginning in the fourth verse, it says, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Verse 12 in the classic Amplified says, And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear and revere God, since you have not held back from me, or begrudged giving me your son, your only son. He did this out of his love for God. This verse shows his attitude. It wasn't begrudging. He wasn't angry, spiteful, or insubordinate. He looked past himself and his own will to do what God had told him to do. He submitted himself and surrendered to God's perfect will. His willingness to do God's will provided the necessary experience for trust and dependability to be exemplified, which are the bedrock of friendship. When you have the three of these together, love, trust, and dependability, you have a true, strong, durable friendship, especially when these things are mutually held with God. This is where Abraham fulfilled John 15 and 14. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. That's not always an easy command to follow. Many times it's the exact opposite. Sometimes it's hard, painful, bitter even. That's not why God gives these commands, but it can be the effect of our natural aversion to surrender and of our partial view of the big picture. What if God commands us to offer up our only beloved son on the altar before him, the child that we prayed for for so long? Would we do it? Or better yet, what if he asks us to sacrifice ourselves on the altar before him? Would we be that sacrifice? In reality, that is what he's calling us to do. He's calling you to be a sacrifice today, for your life to be a sacrifice to him. Romans 12 and 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now it's not Isaac that's called to be on the altar. It's you. It's me. It's all of us. We're to willingly lay down our lives, not in the sense of physical death, although many have admirably done so, but in the sense of death to ourselves. That's how we die daily, 
and the purpose of why we do so. That's how we live for him who died for us. The classic Amplified sheds some more light on this. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, and beg you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. It's our love that drives us to make the decision to devote our lives to Him and His service, as we devote and consecrate ourselves to do His will, as we do whatsoever He commands us. It's our love that pushes us onwards, even when the commands are hard to hear and even harder to follow. Love is blind. It doesn't look at the difficulty or the complexity of the situations we think they'll lead to. Love just sees the giver of the commands, and our deep love for Him, our desire for intimacy with Him, this is what drives us to do what He's calling for us to do, even if it means sacrificing Isaac, and even if it means sacrificing ourselves. Love is the offer, the source, the origin of sacrifice. So many people today are against sacrifice because they're afraid of what they feel they'll lose. Countless Christians feel this way right now. I'll lose my friends, my family members, maybe I'll lose my job or anything else. The mind gets centered on perceived future losses instead of promises of future blessings. The devil skews our focus and our attention. He distracts us with one thing here while he does something else behind our back. He gets our focus on the wrong things. We will lose something in the process of sacrificing. Every sacrifice requires loss just by the nature of what it is. But what is it that we're losing? We're losing things that if we took a hard, honest look at them, that we don't want anyway. We're losing our old, sinful nature, our imperfect understanding, our own prideful insistence on following our own fallen, sinful will. We don't really want that. If we did, we would have never come to Christ in the first place. So why are we desperately trying to hold on to them now? It's a biblical principle that we first had to be willing to lose in order to find, and it's not surprising that that's the case. Because really, that's what sacrifice is. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26 said, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? The first two verses in the classic Amplified say, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to be my disciple, let him deny himself, disregard, lose sight of, and forget himself and his own interests, and take up his cross and follow me. Cleave steadfastly to me, conform wholly to my example in living, and if need be, in dying also. For whosoever is bent on saving his temporal life, his comfort and security here, shall lose it eternal life. And whoever loses his life, his comfort and security here, for my sake, shall find it life everlasting. This is a calling for total, complete, absolute surrender, a surrender of the entire life to God and service to Him. This is a relinquishing of all control, a relinquishing not done due to force, but one done out of love, putting total trust in God and depending completely on Him. That's what friends of God do. This is our action. James 2 and 3 in the Message Bible says, The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that we've a believing and acting that God Abraham named God's friend. That's what does it. When we believe him enough to understand the necessity of his call for sacrifice and then act on that calling, 
setting our minds and hearts to do whatsoever He commands, even if it means the surrender of our entire life to Him. We open ourselves up to become friends of God. John 15 and 13 told us, Greater love have no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Your friend Jesus laid down his life for you. He gave up his spot in the heavens, an action he didn't have to take, to come down here, take on the human form, take on the limitations of human life, and offer himself a sacrifice for the sins that you committed against him. Friendship goes both ways, though, so now it's our job to do the same for him. It's our job to surrender to him so he can live through us, using us as a vessel for which his spirit can flow and operate. Just like we saw earlier in Proverbs 18 and 24, the first half said, A man that has friends must show himself friendly. You show yourself friendly to God by doing what friends do, loving him, trusting him completely in surrender, and depending on him to be there when you need him. It's when you live the fully surrendered life that you're truly ready and willing to do whatsoever he commands us to. Let's close in prayer. Lord, today we thank you that you don't just view us as servants, that your relationship with us isn't just transactional and businesslike, but that you call us friends, just like you did with Abraham. Lord, today we thank you that we're free to love you, to trust you, and to depend on you. We thank you that you've entrusted us with your word, that you've entrusted us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, grant us the wisdom to use these gifts that you've so graciously given us in the right way, in a way that's profitable to us, and more importantly, in a way that honors and glorifies your name. Lord, we thank you that you're able to trust us also and that you're able to depend on us. Lord, give us the readiness, the strength, and the courage, the boldness to do what you've called us to do, to be there when you need us, and to be the one to stand in the gap, even if there's no one else who will do it. Lord, we thank you that you quicken us by your spirit, that you make us ready, willing, and able to do whatsoever you have commanded us to do. And Lord, we thank you that the friendship that we share with you will not only be a benefit to ourselves, but that it will also compel those around us to come to you so that they can have their own friendship with you also. Lord, today we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to be a friend of God and have Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. Now, if you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you want even more of the King's Word, you can go to our YouTube page at King's Word Ministry, visit our TikTok page at King's Word Bible, and our Instagram page at King's Word Bible Study. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all, and we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together. <laughs>